Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Just sit down. Let's stick in your eyes. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Thank you. Of democracy, very good. <laughs> G'day and welcome to Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kenny. With me, as usual, is the political scientist, Dr. Maria Tafaga. And in this episode, we're speaking to Dr. Andrew Lee, MP. Andrew is the federal Labor member for the seat of Fenner in the ACT, and he's also Assistant Minister for Competition, Charities, and Treasury. Prior to being elected in 2010, Andrew was a professor here at ANU in economics. So uh, I guess we should declare that it's a very ANU kind of um, podcast this week, really, because even your seat, Fenner, is named after a, a giant of the ANU, Andrew. The wonderful Frank Fenner, uh, Mark, uh, the man who declared to the World Health Assembly the end of smallpox and who also publicly injected himself with enough myxomatosis virus to kill a thousand rabbits in order to <laughs> prove to the Australian people that myxomatosis was safe. Uh, he was very successful in that, although apparently afterwards his colleagues liked to refer to him as Bunny. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea that he had done that. Well, there you go. Remarkable man. Real real privilege to be uh, representing his seat. Almost as much a privilege as appearing on Democracy Sausage. Uh, almost as much. That's right. Well, I mean, and look, he he went to, because I'm from Adelaide, right? And he went to Adelaide University. So he's um, that's my alma mater as well. Um, and I think he went to Rose Park Primary School in Adelaide, which it just occurred to me when I read that, that uh, that was also a, a school that Tony Blair went to. Funnily enough, it, these remarkable connections, aren't they? And you just you think about that uh, that generation of researchers at the ANU. You know, Canberra is not the biggest city in Australia, but it would have been a a really small environment he was working in, and yet just reaching out to the globe. Uh, and that's that the best of ANU tradition: being global, being engaged with public policy, but aiming to produce research at the top journals. Right. And one of the reasons we're talking to Andrew Lee this week is that he has a new essay out in the National Interest Series published by Monash University Publishing, um, and it's called Fair Game, Lessons from Sport for a Fairer Society and a Stronger Economy. So I should formally say welcome back to Democracy Sausage, Andrew. Um, 
this is a this is a really interesting uh, idea uh, to me. This this idea of taking lessons from sport and thinking about how those lessons can apply in other ways. You know, what what kind of good things, what model things come from sport that can be applied to our society, our politics, and particularly our economy. What made you think of this? Mark, I've often been troubled by the notion in economics that we have to choose between growth and fairness, and sport is a perfect counter to that. In sport, we value achievement and we value teamwork. Uh, We think about that wonderful moment when John Landy stops to help a fallen Ron Clark on the track and then goes on to win the race. This is back in, what, 1956, I think, wasn't it? Indeed, yes. In the early 1950s when uh, they're vying to break the four-minute mile. And that that incredible moment of of grace is celebrated by Australians, as is uh, the uh, rugby league trophy, which shows uh, two opposing captains with their arms around one another. Uh, So we do recognise in sport that teams are greater than the sum of their individuals. Uh, and we recognise that the, the value of fairness really matters. It's about playing within not just the rules of the game, but the norms of the game. And somehow I feel like we've forgotten that a bit in, a, in an increasingly aggressive economy in which some people have to choose between uh, going to work sick or going, going to bed hungry, in which we're not able to uh, invest in, uh, the, in uh, talented youngsters from disadvantaged backgrounds in the way that the best coaches uh, invest in disadvantaged athletes. Sport's not perfect, but I think it's got a few things to teach Australian society and our economy. Isn't it, though, also true to say that you could take – you could go exactly the other way with sport and you could say the the economy has come to resemble sport in a lot of ways, become hyper – competitive not in all aspects of course but um, you know there's a sort of a there's a kind of a Darwinianism in sport really it's the it's the not so much the survival but the the prevailing of the fittest that's that's what sport does it's all about uh, competence and um, and and excelling in a particular code a particular set of skills um, and and it and it kind of takes no prisoners really in that regard. So it's 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 a bit like you know the neoliberal economy, um, you know, kind of set the rules and and then and then kind of let the best person win. One of the things we love in sport, Mark, is the notion of the underdog, the idea that a team can finish as the wooden spooners one year and win the grand final the next year. We've got a set of rules that tries to enforce that. We've got a player draft that lets the lowest ranked teams choose first. We share out revenues. And uh, for sports like golf, we use a handicapping system in order to put players on an equal level. Uh, we don't have the smallest person boxing the biggest person. We actually divide the uh, contestants up into weight categories. And so we get a good competition. It's fundamental to sport that we have a bit of fluidity. Uh, but you look at the Australian stock market and you say, who are the biggest five firms today and where were they in 1985? The answer is that four of our biggest five firms today were also top five in 1985. So this is companies like BHP and and uh, is it those sort of big uh, mining companies? Yeah, BHP, Commonwealth Bank and the like. Uh, So, you know, just imagine if your favourite sporting contest, the top five teams had barely moved in a generation. You'd think that was a pretty dull sporting contest. Uh, We love the notion of being able to move from rags to riches in sport. We see much less of that in the economy proper. Uh, And I reckon we can do things like uh, better scouting entrepreneurial talent and ensuring that uh, our new innovators aren't just 
uh, affluent blokes fr- uh, from uh, from well-off backgrounds, but that we're also tapping into underserved minority communities uh, to get our, our next Peter Doherty or our next Elizabeth Blackburn. Why do you think Monopoly is so offensive to us in sport? Uh, but but not in, you know, like the actual real stuff of a good life. Like that's actually, I mean, someone who doesn't really pay much attention to sport, I've never really thought about it like this, Andrew, but yeah, like that is actually really interesting. Why do you think that is? Well, Maria, I think we love the the idea of competitive balance within sport. We love the idea that a, a, a fair a game isn't just about uh, seeing what happens if we put all the best players on one team and stack them up against everyone else, uh, but it's about actually having a real contest where you don't know at the start who's going to win. Uh, and in the economy, uh, there is a, a strong sense among many people I talk to that people would like to see a bit more of that, uh, that people don't like the notion that Pretty much any Australian industry you can name, from banks to baby food to beer, uh, is dominated by a couple of big players. And then actually having more scrappy startups would be good for the economy. Uh, Just like more babies is good for demography, uh, more new companies is good for the economy. Uh, I've been troubled by the fact that the startup rate has actually been falling over recent decades. Is it perhaps, uh, though, going to Mara's question that Within the sporting codes, and I can think of a few just off the top of my head, there's a there's a sort of a sense of the viability of the of the overall system. So if we think about the AFL, you, you were mentioning you were mentioning the draft, for example, and I remember when this was uh, this sort of system was was coming in as the AFL became a truly national competition. Some commentators were referring to it as the socialism within the AFL. This idea that the poorest you know poorest performing clubs would have access to the highest draft picks the next year and you know there was leveling up and there was of course money that was going to some of what they what the Americans call expansion teams you know the teams that were mm, being mm. established in new markets as as they say in sport these days but it's it's also the case with uh, even things like F1 you know supposedly a rich person's sport but they have um they have spending caps so that the big teams can't obliterate the smaller teams uh you know there are limits on how many engines they can use per year and gearboxes and these sorts of things they have to take penalties if they if they if they exceed them and this is an attempt to try and keep the spending within at least some level of attainability for for the the lower schemes now the lower teams now we don't really have that in the economy do we and that's i guess your point uh, that's right. There's no equivalent of GWS giants getting uh, an additional amount of revenue in their startup years in order to take on the big players. In fact, sometimes in the economy, the big players will put uh, what economists call moats in place in order to keep out competitors or or seek to buy competitors to stop them to uh, stop the uh, competition. Uh, that's why we need good competition laws in order to make sure that the economy has some of the best characteristics of sport. And if we can do that, then we get a better game, uh, both economically and uh, in terms of entertainment. Uh, we can also see in industries that are more competitive uh, that there's uh, less discrimination. And we've seen this within uh, econ- industries such as banking. Uh, you can also see less racial discrimination within uh, sports such as US baseball uh, at during times when the, the competition becomes more competitive. This is actually quite like fascinating in the sense that you know it's in, in effect we accept in in sport I guess the sort of tight regulation of an artificial sort of system you know based on on you know out and out kind of moral grounds in many cases 
But when we seek to do this for people's actual material interests in, in I guess, you know, the great game of, of life, I guess you never hear sort of personal responsibility arguments, do you, um, applied to, to sporting competitions. But we very much do see that in the world of, you know, work and, and, and welfare. So I guess, you know, Andrew, as a government, how do you get us to, uh, to shift this mindset? Part of it is about bringing some of those values of kindness into uh, the economy, I believe, Maria. Uh, I'm really struck by the way in which uh, the best uh, sports people aren't just successful on the field, but they're also the fairest towards their opponents. Uh, and yet sometimes people can uh, treat workers, particularly in the service industry, like they're robots. Uh, just expect them uh, not not to be able to uh, to to be able to get by without sick leave. And then another area where I think sport can teach us something is in uh, the way in which we regard working class blokes. There's sometimes a tendency in our society to have a bit of snobbery towards working class guys. You know, think about the way in which uh, working class dads are portrayed in The Simpsons or Home Improvement or All in the Family. Uh, and that's in contrast to the sporting field, which really does celebrate uh, brawny blokes for what they can, uh, what they can do. Uh, all work should have dignity, and that notion of the dignity of work uh, is something that sport celebrates far better than many aspects of our society and economy. That's pretty fascinating, actually. That that notion of the the kind of the sociology of it, as well as the the economics of it, the way we, the the institutional role that sports play, that sporting codes play in societies, and I can think of the, the sort of, I guess you'd call them those great working class codes, um, things like the football codes, soccer, mm. Uh, mm. league, AFL, and. Uh, Perhaps in in America, basketball, you know, very much uh, a, 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 a sport that is dominated now by African American basketballers, but they are people, but they are um, people who've grown up playing it in in impoverished neighbourhoods in many cases, not in all, of course. But these these are sports where the, the talent of these people, the physical attributes and talent of these people, have allowed them to excel in a way that the economy may not provide the same pure access toward the top. Yeah, but I think we can also do a lot to make sure that the gains are shared, even for those who aren't the very best players in the top. Uh, so I think about the creation of Rugby League in 1907. You know, Rugby League comes out of the frustration that many working class people feel about the fact that the uh, dominant code, Rugby Union, uh, is defiantly amateur and refuses to pay players, uh, even when they're injured. And so a group of players get together and form a breakaway Rugby League code in Australia, as has happened in uh, Britain in earlier times, uh, and many of the people who are associated with the growth, the growth of rugby league, are then associated with the trade union movement and the Labor Party. Uh, so Doc Everett, when his first run for politics, uh, advertises himself as the rugby league candidate, uh, very much sending a message to uh, working class Sydney siders that he values the notion that players ought to be paid. So it isn't just about what's going on at the top, it's also about the sharing of the benefits right across the sport. Uh, and again, uh, the, and, but the, the... And in that, though, is a really, really interesting aspect is, is the, the sort of social value of those clubs in those communities as well, isn't it? And that's, he's speaking to that as well, the identity and, this, and, the, and, the, and the collective nature of those, those sporting clubs. 
which is quite different from some of the individual sports. Yes, that's such a good point. And, uh, uh, you know, the collective nature of team sports, I think, reminds us that very few things that happen in society are the actions of an individual. Uh, and that's even true, I think, of individual athletes. Uh, you know, I'm a marathon runner, but the, uh, I benefit from access to fab- fabulous coaches and support from an extraordinary family. Uh, and you'll, you'll hear from any successful athlete uh, about the team of people who are around them, their you know, nutritionists and their psychologists and their their trainers. Uh, so that web of people that we rely on is a, is a reminder that uh, at its best, sport really is a reflection of our ability to do together something that's much more than any of us could do as individuals. I wrote a column, uh, I don't know, it must be 12, 18 months ago. One loses track of time in these, uh, in these COVID uh, days, but um, uh, where I actually, you know, partly tongue-in-cheek, talked about some sports being more right-wing or more conservative than than others. And I suppose I was playing around with this idea of, um, you know, the collective nature of of some of these working-class sports, but Mm. also um, just the, the... some of the attributes of the sports themselves, and golf I singled out as essentially a a, a kind of a right-wing sport. Um, Now, I know this is, as I say, this was partly sort of tongue-in-cheek, but it is interesting to think that there are that sports people have changed over time in terms of their politics. You you talked before about uh, some of the social causes that they have taken up. In my lifetime, I think I've witnessed a, a sort of a transition of elite level sports towards more progressive causes that uh, that was has not been associated with sport when I was a kid. I mean, sport was was essentially because I you know when I was growing up there was this kind of very clear delineation between sport and politics and mm, business mm. and religion. These things were all kind of, you know, the, the, the sort of pillars of society, but they were not easily kind of um, mixed and matched, as it were, uh, whereas now you have quite a lot of sporting, uh, elite-level sporting people who are quite open about backing political causes. And I think that's encouraging. I'm personally, uh, you know, glad to see that. Yes, well, I think about the uh, so many movements of racial equality that have had a spark from sport. Mm. Uh, Peter Norman uh, standing uh, standing with John John Carlos and Tommy Smith uh, on the dais. Uh, this uh, is the raised fist moment the, when yeah. they raise their fists, and he wears an Olympic Project for Human Rights badge and said, "I'll, yeah. I'll stand in solidarity with you." Uh, Colin Kaepernick taking a knee, and uh, all of that meant in terms of the uh, Black Lives Matter, which movement. Lewis Hamilton then went on to do again in F one, which which was, you know, quite extraordinary, getting Absolutely. other drivers to do that. Yeah, yeah. So you, so you see a lot of racial justice movements being kicked off through sport, and, and that is, to me, very different from uh, the the era in which I, you and I grew up in, Mark, uh, in which there were many people uh, at the time of the South African uh, apartheid, the all-white teams mm. coming to tour Australia, who said it's it's perfectly fine to have all-white teams because sport and politics should yes. be mixed. Yes, that's you know, right. It was used to justify yeah, that, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. Now you've got great, you know, terrific people like Craig Foster working with uh, refugees, mm. uh, using uh, soccer slash football as a way of uh, incorporating new migrants into the community, but also out there publicly advocating on issues of uh, of, of refugees. Yeah. Uh, 
uh, but you, you, your original point uh, reminded me of something which actually hit the cutting room floor in the book because it uh, started off twice the length that I finally published it with Monash. <laughs> um, there's a bit of a literature on uh, the sports where, team sports, where an individual can be more dominant versus less dominant. Uh, and the, the extremes are AFL and basketball. So in basketball, you really can have a Michael Jordan just taking over the court. Mm. Uh, and there's no real uh, ability of an AFL player to do on the field what a Michael Jordan can do. Uh, and I think, uh, though I haven't seen anyone really look carefully at it, that the Americans tend to go more for sports that can, team sports that can be dominated by a single player. Baseball, for example, you know, you can get a, a Babe Ruth out there mm. that hits hits a few home runs and just you know, makes the entire game. I don't think you can be a Babe Ruth in rugby league. Okay, let's take a quick break there and be back in a moment. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Now, you were just about to ask a question, Mara, so away you go. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think... These, what you were sort of saying around the sort of class dimensions of some sports and I guess these ideas of, of, of sportsmanship and what we can kind of learn from them, well, it sort of raised a, a question um, um, that I'd like to ask you, Andrew, and I was thinking about, you know, cricket is, you know, not a working class game, but it was a, a game for gentlemen amateurs, right, which is pretty much how the British like to run their, their empire. Um, That's and, how you they know, run over, their governments. Well, well <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, um, you could make that case right now, I think, yes. yeah. And and, and you know, sport has increasingly but kind of become you know big, big business, and and that's sort of the point that I guess Mark was pushing you on at the very beginning of the um, the episode. And and there are dimensions of sport now that that are unattractive, I think, and unappealing um, to us. And and I guess I you know you've got these ideas about what we could learn from from sport and how that might help us improve the way we think about how we should run our economy and our society. But do you actually think that the worst excesses of what is going on in the sporting world are actually the same pathologies that we face in the economy? And if so, well, how do you think we could perhaps move to fix some of them? Yeah, you're, you're totally right, Mara, that just because I've uh, given the economy the wooden spoon doesn't mean I should automatically give sport the gold medal. Uh, it is true that there's problems in sport, and often they reflect uh, some of the issues in the broader society, uh, whether that's uh, um, abuse of alcohol or uh, physical violence itself. But I do think that there is a- And excessive wealth. 
Indeed, indeed. Uh, but I do think that there's uh, a set of norms around sport which could be valuable if brought more broadly into this into society. Um, so you know, you mentioned cricket before. Uh, Rob De Costello reminded me of this lovely quote that uh, Don Bradman uh, from Don Bradman's speech when he's admitted to the Hall of Fame. He says, "When considering the stature of an athlete, or for that matter any person, I set great store on certain qualities which I." believe to be essential in addition to skill. They are that the person conducts his or her life with dignity and with integrity, with courage and perhaps most of all with modesty. These virtues are totally compatible with pride, ambition and competitiveness. And that for me sums up uh, an ethos that I think many Australians would admire about cricket or, or any other sport for that matter, uh, and which I reckon could make a big difference if they flowed more fully through society and the economy. Well, that's that's a really good point, but it does actually invite another question along the lines of what where Mara was going, and that is, and I you know I acknowledge your point about you're not saying this is all one thing or the other, but there's a real tendency in sport now for massive self congratulation about every bloody thing. Um, I, I remember reading a piece in I think it was in the New York Times uh, several years ago where uh, this this columnist was making the point that we'd. We'd sort of, our politics had succumbed to the kind of egotism of the end zone dance. You know, they, that, that we, we, we were so big now on self-congratulation that has bled into sport but also back, washed back from sport into other aspects of, of our lives so that, you know, there, there's, a, there's a lack of modesty. There's a lack of humility associated with success. Every now and then you'll see when you're watching a, a game of football, round ball football, for example, Someone will score a goal and just literally stand there, and you know a few other people will jump around them, and they'll they'll sort of head back toward the centre for the you know for the resumption of the game. And it's so refreshing to see someone who's not running around with their shirt pulled over their head, you know, kind of pleading for as much praise as can be possibly absorbed within that ten seconds. You know, um, this has become very very much a, a factor of sport now. That sort of loss of modesty and humility and a sort of balance, really. Uh, because those goals, particularly in a team game, are a, are a function of a team having got the ball to that point and then someone's been lucky enough to tuck it into the net. Yeah, and no, I think you're uh, you're totally right about the way in which sports people could exhibit more of the qualities that Don Bradman talks about. Uh, but it is in sport, I think, those qualities that are still revered, Mark. Mm. You know, that's why we have the statues to, to people like John Landy, because there's a celebration of uh, an ability to, to see yourself as part of a greater community and a kindness to others. Uh, and I'm not sure that that is seen as being the ideal behaviour of, of someone in business, for example. Uh, so getting... Yeah, they do it a different way, I suppose. You know, they buy a Maserati and, you know... It, well, it's there, there's certainly the, the best. The best of business is about being able to give back to the community, yeah. and I'd like to see uh, a little bit more of that. I'd also like to see the ability of of us in our education system to do what the best uh, coaches do. So, how do we get the best school teachers teaching the most disadvantaged students mm. uh, in a way in which you know, in that moment when Yvonne Gulagong is spied looking through a, a tennis court fence, the coach in 
inside, invites her in, uh, begins to give, give, give her tennis lessons, inspires her potential. We're still much better it's a beautiful, at, uh, at beautiful talent. Moment, yeah. It is, it is. And we're still much better at talent scouting in sport than we are in the broader economy. This is really fascinating, right? Because, you know, in, in effect, you're, you're sort of pointing to the fact that we, we have actually kind of lost like a whole set of language around, you know, how we talk about our collective purpose as a society. Uh, I was thinking, you know, what you were sort of saying about all of these kinds of values and I immediately sort of thought of the post-war generation, right, the, the generation of joiners who wanted to build up their communities because they had endured 20 years of um, depression and war on the back of, you know, our previous 30 years of like disastrously terrible economic times in Australia and another war and another depression. Right. Um, and, and I just sort of wonder, um, you know, is there, you know, can we actually look to how sports codes, for example, created or discussed introducing things like the draft or the redistribution, like, you know, to, to actually apply that to our broader policy discussions? Or is it simply that we will accept this sort of bounded set of rules in sport because it is sort of finite and much clearer in terms of the actual payoffs than we might be able to see in 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 the society so so put it another way andrew is is your is your dream here like utterly hopeless or or should I be less cynical? <laughs> you should always be be an optimist, Rara. Um, and I, I think I think that's the right approach for uh, for politicians and academics. Uh, uh, journalists, I think, probably need a dose of cynicism uh, in the in, in what they do. Uh, but our occupations can be purely purely optimistic. Look, I, I mean, I uh, observe two sets of big trends in the Australian economy right now. Uh, we're becoming uh, less dynamic economy. We've got uh, markups increasing, market concentration increasing, fewer startups, less job switching. And then I also see a, a rise in, in inequality. So we've gone from no billionaires in 1986 to 137 billionaires now. The top 1% share has doubled. Uh, and we've got uh, a whole lot of markers of wealth inequality have risen too. Uh, but I think we can begin to create not only a productive uh, more productive economy, but also one that does a, a better job of sharing the gains. Uh, and that's uh, that's going to come in part from a reset of our norms about what we value, uh, not saying, hey, it's a choice between innovation versus equality, but actually there's a whole lot of policies uh, such as scouting entrepreneurial talent, such as improving our competition laws, uh, which put us in that sweet spot uh, of being a more efficient and a more uh, equitable society. It's an interesting point, though, that Mara raises about the, uh, you know, the the discreteness of sport, or the the fact that it's a finite set of uh, activities and you know, of of um, indexes of importance, right? So indices of importance. So a sport like the AFL will need to make sure that its that its eighteen teams remain viable, mm. and that any matchup of any combination of two teams playing will have. Uh, you know, have enough interest to be broadcastable and to have enough people at the ground, you know. I mean, in other words, the whole thing has to be viable as a business. So internally, it has all of these different mechanisms by, by which it does that, and we've discussed some of those. Lots of other businesses do that as well in their own way. So in a sense, that's a sport behaving like a business, but its business happens to be maintaining a level of 
equilibrium to some extent, functional equilibrium in those in those amongst those teams, uh, in order to keep the the whole competition viable. Yeah, but competition is important in the economy as well, and uh, the economics profession has moved on this in the last generation. So if you go back to the 1980s, there was a kind of view, the so-called Chicago school view, that big is beautiful, that it's okay if a couple of big firms dominate the market, that in practice they're not going to engage in predatory pricing because it won't be in the interest of their long-term bottom line. And the economics profession, by and large, has has moved away from that. And the so-called New Brandis school movement now... uh, epitomised by Lena Khan heading the Federal Trade Commission, people like Amy Klobuchar in the Senate, uh, Tim Wu in the White House. Uh, Those people are saying, hey, you do need to worry when markets get dominated by by one or two players. You need to worry about the outcome for consumers. You need to worry about the outcome of less innovation. You need to worry that the workers then don't have very many choices about where to work. And you certainly need to worry about the political power that those behemoth firms then can can then wield. Now, in the time we've got left, uh, you've presumably been at the job summit uh, as we record this. Um, what's your What's your verdict? Amazingly, um, amazingly high degree of consensus and collegiality. One of the things that that struck me out of this, having now been in politics for twelve years, was when you get people in a room with a sense of goodwill, there really is a, a sort of shared purpose about ad- addressing uh, the challenges we face. Uh, Dylan Alcott had just spoken uh, in a session before lunch, and uh, he was making the point that it is critical for forward-thinking thinking firms to look at employing people with disabilities, uh, not only for the opportunities that gives them as workers, but also because a smart firm should want its customers to be able to see themselves reflected uh, in the employees of that that firm. Uh, And uh, just talking about the ways in which he's working to change opportunities. Uh, And then you had corporate leaders speaking about the inclusive policies of of their firms. Uh, And again, that's, you know, sweet spot stuff. Uh, It's both the about egalitarianism and it's about efficiency because there's nothing efficient or productive about an economy that leaves behind the talents of people with disabilities. Yeah, I, I mean, I think um, there's been like a lot of cynicism around the the job summit as a as a talk fest, right? And you kind of expect that from the media. Um, you know, we've all seen, uh, I guess, you know, moves like this before. But I've actually been thinking about this in the kind of broader context of norms and, um, you know, we've seen a real kind of degradation of norms uh, across the democratic world in the last sort of 10 or 15 years. And and it has actually kind of, I think, made me think that that actually being seen to, to discuss civilly, being seen to enact norms, being seen to actually reinforce them is actually really kind of vital to their um, maintenance. And if we sort of take it back to this sort of sport uh, economy analogy, I mean, you know, like you can't you can't be an elite sportsman overnight. It, it takes years of training, right? And and that's actually the same with good with good government. You know, you can't just dream up a great policy in two days. Like, actually, we have now you know more examples than you could throw a stick at of just how bad an idea that is. And so, you know, I mean, I hope the job summit doesn't turn out to be you know, just another sort of summit that we kind of put in the sort of cynical joke basket. And I'm not saying that it, that it, that it is, Andrew, or, or anything like that. But I guess for those of you who are sort of cynical about these exercises, you know, well, what is the actual 
alternative, right? Like a government announcement mm. coming out of nowhere. Yeah, like conversations actually have to happen somewhere. Absolutely. And, you know, the alternative to a job summit is uh, Tony Abbott announcing knights and dames or Scott Morrison <laughs> appointing himself to five, five ministries. You you want people to talk, to have these have these sensible conversations. This week, we've had these two remarkable uh, agreements, one between the peak union body and small business, another one between the peak union body and big business. Uh, and you've had uh, consensus around the importance of boosting training, so more than 100,000 additional fee-free TAFE places. Uh, also important conversations around migration, not only at the level of migration, but also ensuring that migrants themselves are well treated and that we get speedy processing of visas. Uh, since we're at ANU, we should uh, mention—I should mention a comment that Brian Schmidt made, which is uh, one of the things he liked about Australia when he first applied is that uh, his visa took four days to be processed, uh, and uh, being you know raising raising this this concern that with this massive visa backlog at the moment, potentially what's going to happen to the next Brian Schmidt who applies to Australia? So you know, there's no there was nobody in the room that was saying, well, really, what Australia needs is a longer visa backlog. Uh, yeah, so is it 900,000 at the moment? 900,000 yeah. down from a million when we came to office. So we've got to get that get that lower. Uh, and and consensus on issues like that flows from these these sorts of uh, of conversations, you know, very much in the spirit of the 19, 1983 National Economic Summit. Yeah, and that was what uh, Albanese was trying to uh, I guess, invoke from the beginning. And he was talking about that for a long time before the election, uh, talking about the value of of dialogue and consensus of bringing Australians together, which, of course, was Hawke's actual election-winning slogan back in 83. Um, and um, and he's gone about doing that. Uh, it, it, it looked to me like a, a very useful exercise. I guess the longer-term test, going to Mara's point about how it will be looked at down the track, will be the, the extent to which things... That came, things did come from it, and that they actually stuck. Um, but as you say, there's the there's the agreement between the ACTU and Cosboa, the small business organisations, um, in relation to multi-employer bargaining, and the one between the ACTU. What was the other one you mentioned? There's the one between the ACTU and the Business Council of Australia. So, and that goes to uh, that's that's around the uh, the structure of bargaining. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, but but I think it's you want to be careful in just saying the success is purely in the policy outcomes, Mark. I, I totally agree. If no, there were no, 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 no policy I, no, outcomes, no, it'd be a failure. But uh, the health of the democracy is 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 on the chopping block. Yeah, you know the share of Australians who say they don't trust government, they don't believe governments act in their interests, they think the country's on the wrong track. The ANU survey shows that that's that's been on the rise, and so we need to turn that turn that around for the sake of the polity. It's also, I think, really important if we can get good practical things done at the same time. Yeah, now, I, I, look, let me just for the record agree with you uh, enthusiastically about that because, um, uh, and I have written that, I mean, I do think that there's a, a, a I watched uh, the two leaders, Sally McManus and uh, Jennifer Westacott on Insiders last week. Mm. Uh, I think a lot of people- That was uh, so refreshing. Yeah, a lot of people were just struck by the extraordinary difference of having these two powerful women of these, you know, significant institutions- Actually speaking civilly, respectfully, constructively, there was content. They were there actually was, listening to each other. Listening to each other, they were. They were. They, there was a sort of a, a kind of an understated patriotism about it. You know, to to sort of rest that word back off the off the mad right. There was a sort of a sense of 
this is what is in the national interest mm. if mm. we can find uh, progress here. And that was a great way, I think, for – it was a, both an indication of but also a great way of framing the atmosphere as, as, as the, um, we moved into that summit. And I think it is a very positive thing. I do think down the track, um, if 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 some of these things have, and and there are other material policies that have come from it as well, or at least that have been announced at it, and which are influential for business and everything else. So, um, I think you know its test over time will be uh, how much changes, but I don't think it's the exclusive test. I think you know I accept your point there. Mm, mm. Well, look, we probably should let you go. Um, it is uh, a Friday afternoon as we're speaking, and it's just been ongoing. I don't know if you've been for your run today, but you did mention before that you were um, a, a marathon runner. I'm just going to make the point um, that uh, you're quite a serious marathon runner, actually. You've done all six of the world marathon majors, which is pretty significant. So what are they? Is that Berlin, London, New York, uh, Tokyo, Tokyo Boston, Boston, Chicago? And, and Chicago, right. Uh, that's that's pretty significant in itself. And you've also your best time is two hours forty two, which is elite level, um, and and extraordinary. Uh, you and I have discussed this before, but uh, I used to um, have quite a bit to do with John Bannon, the former South Australian Premier, no longer with us sadly. But um, he uh, was another sitting MP who who ran marathons. He was Premier in South Australia back in the eighties. I can't remember the number that he did, but it was an extraordinary number. I think thirty or something over over the over the period. Something remarkable, yes. And I think and continued. So he did a a two forty five while he was premier, yeah, which is just astonishing. He did, and he and, and not only that, I think he ran a marathon every year while he was premier, at least one, and all of them were under three hours. Extra uh, extraordinary athlete, yes. Um, so I perhaps better let you go off and go for your run today. You've probably done twenty k's already. I'm not sure. I uh, I did did my fourteen k bush run this morning, Mark. And uh, one of the things that I love about running first thing in the morning is then it just it sets you up for the day so I agree. beautifully. Yeah. You know, I saw the kangaroos bounding by, heard the kookaburras, uh, and uh, and got that sense of both nature and of my body singing to me. Uh, so I'm training for the Canberra one hundred trail race in uh, in eight days' time. So oh. uh, looking at Looking forward to, uh, to looking forward to having that race behind me. Yeah, are you in that one, Mara? You're sickeningly healthy. This is you've probably run more this morning than I have run in the last year. <laughs> <laughs> it's an addiction. Don't worry. Don't, don't worry about that. Yes. Well, I know a bit about that. Um, thank you very much for coming in. It's been really great to talk about all these issues, and 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 I really recommend this book, uh, Fair Game: Lessons from Sport and a Fairer Society for a Fairer Society and a Stronger Economy by Andrew Lee, and um, you can get that at all good bookshops and probably some bad ones. Thank you very much. Real pleasure to appear on the podcast with you both. Thank you, and thanks, Mara. You're welcome. See you next time, guys. Okay, cheers. Bye. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. 
Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.